0: this event people are going to exchange gifts with one another celebrating oh they're gone now the rain can come we can drink the water no more problems let's celebrate they're in for a shock
1: welcome to search the scriptures the bible teaching ministry of dr carl brogi senior pastor of community bible church of Beaufort, South Carolina. We're looking at two witnesses who are identified in chapter 11 of the Revelation, a book we've been studying for the past several months. Within this context, the word witnesses means martyrs, and these two martyrs have the responsibility of proclaiming to the world that the disasters occurring during the last half of the tribulation are judgments of God. Before these witnesses begin their ministry, scripture tells us that the world will come against Jews in an expression of anti-Semitism unlike any ever seen before.
0: There's a time coming in history where Gentile oppression on the Jews is going to increase like never before. There are two important terms. We studied them in Daniel 9. We studied them in Romans 11. One is called the times of the Gentiles. The other is called the fullness of the Gentiles. The times of the Gentiles began, according to the Bible, about 600 years before Christ when Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king, came and carried the, way, the Jews away into exile. And ever since 600 years before Christ, the Jewish people have been oppressed by the Gentile nations of the world. Even today, yes, they're in their own land, but do the nations around them and do most nations of the world love the Jewish people? No, they hate them. Why are they fleeing Western Europe and they keep moving into Israel? Because they're so hated by the Germans, by the French, by the English. There's an anti-Semitic spirit that just keeps growing and growing and growing. But the fullest expression of Gentile opposition will be in this final 42 months. Here's a chart that might help us to visualize it a little bit. Right now, we're in the times of the Gentiles, and it began with Nebuchadnezzar, and it will go all the way until the second coming of Christ. The other term I mentioned is the fullness of the Gentiles. We often call it the church age, where God is calling out a bride to be his own. And um There's coming a time when that will be full. Right now, God is not using the Jewish people to evangelize the world because for the most part, they are in unbelief with a rare exception. Doesn't mean a Jewish person can't come to Christ. A Jewish man was instrumental in leading me into the kingdom. There's a partial hardening, not a total hardening. But there's going to come a time when all Israel will believe and acknowledge that Jesus is Lord. And that will happen after the fullness of the Gentiles is complete. The word fullness is a Greek word that means full to the brim. Right now, God is calling out a Gentile bride. Remember what James said at the Jerusalem conference in Acts chapter 15, bring up that verse. He says, Simeon, that's Peter's Hebrew name. Simeon has related how God first concerned himself about taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name. That's what he's doing today. The people who are evangelizing the world, be they Jew or Gentile, are Gentile people. It's the Gentile nations of the world that are taking the gospel of Jesus Christ. But there's coming a day when it will reach the brim. It could happen today in some church. It could happen in this church. When the final Gentile who's ever going to be born again is going to be born again in the church age. And then the rapture will happen. And shortly thereafter, the 70th week of Daniel's prophecy. All right, are you following me? All right, now I know this is not easy, but... Look, you'll get it bits and pieces. The more you hear and God will put it together for you. I know some, we're learning our numbers. Others, we're learning biblical calculus. But don't let it upset you. Now, let's get into the text. You say, I wondered when he was going to start, all right? All right, three simple truths. They'll go pretty fast. First, the ministry of the two witnesses. Here in verses 3 through 6, John tells us about a description of their ministry and then the defense of it. First, the description of their ministry here in verse Verses 3 and 4. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. Now, God has never left himself without witness. Even Paul, when he's dealing with the pagans up there in Lystra, he said, you've got no excuse. God has not left himself without witness. You've got his rain and sun that fall on you. That's the goodness of God. God has always, even in the worst of times, had a witness. Noah. In his family was a testimony in the dark days before the great flood. The prophet Elijah was God's witness in the gross days of idolatry. He's always had his witness teams, be it Moses or Aaron or Joshua or Caleb or Paul and Silas. And here in this seven-year period, he has these two witnesses. Two witnesses who will prophesy and testify for God. And they are clothed in sackcloth, what today we might call burlap. And they do it for 1,260 days. Now, how long is that? 42 months, three and a half years. And so when you read about this seven-year period over and over, whether it's in Daniel or Revelation or the words of Jesus, it's described in two halves, 42 months, 1260 days, three and a half years, or times, times, and half a times. Not by accident, because the Bible all fits together like a beautiful puzzle. Look at verse 4. These are the two olive trees... And the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. Right now, they're in the Lord's presence, and they are compared to olive trees and lampstands. And again, uh, most of Revelation has allusions to the Old Testament, 300 to the 404 verses, and if we don't know our Old Testament, it makes it harder to understand. I realize that. But if you remember from the prophet Zechariah, the, the, the olive tree was uh, emblematic of the Holy Spirit and the lampstand, the light that he brings. And so these are two men who receive their power and shine their light through the inner dwelling of the Holy Spirit. Beyond the description of their ministry, look at the defense of their ministry. The defense of their ministry beginning now in verse 5. And if anyone, if anyone wants to harm them, Fire flows out of their mouth and devours their enemies so that if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this way. You say you think that will literally happen? Look, there was a time when there were literal dragons on the earth who blew fire out of their mouth. He can do whatever he chooses to do. If he can make a a dragon blow fire, if he can make a donkey talk, a parrot, you know, vocalize my words, he can make humans breathe fire if he so chooses. And so these two humans, if you oppose them, you're a dead man. You're gone. It's too late. Look at verse 6. These, the two witnesses, have the power to shut up the sky so that rain will not fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every plague as often as they desire. So not only do they have authority over individuals, you personally oppose them, they have authority over the nations of the world. And so their ministry, which God is using as with all these judgments in the revelation to wake people up, to get some to repent, they have a ministry that strikes the entire earth. Now, who are these two people? Now, some have said, well, they must be Enoch and Elijah because Enoch and Elijah were literally translated into heaven. Well, I suppose that is a possibility, but it doesn't necessarily have to be because remember, while they were swept off the earth, what kind of a body are they in now? When does the resurrection of Old Testament saints take place? We'll study it later in the Revelation at the end of the 70-year period. That's what Daniel 12 says, and that's what the Revelation confirms. The Jewish people don't get their resurrected body. It's like if you die today, don't describe your life. Oh, he's up in heaven, you know, dancing and, you know, on the streets of gold. and He doesn't have his resurrection body yet. Absent from the body, present with the Lord. We're waiting for the body to be raised up. When Christ shall come back, the dead in Christ will rise first. He'll bring with him those who have departed. The dead in Christ will come back with Christ. The dead will rise, reconnected with the Spirit. And those who remain alive will be caught up together to meet them in the Lord. Look... Elijah and Enoch, if God wanted to give them resurrection bodies, I suppose he could have. But the resurrection of the Old Testament saints is at the end of the seven years. So that would certainly be an exception to the rule. But not to mention, they could not go to heaven and the body they left earth from Even if God did want to give him a resurrection body, he would have to have done that in the air. Why? Because flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. This mortality must put on immortality. This perishable must put on that which is imperishable. Some have said, well, maybe it's Elijah and John the Baptist. Since Jesus links their two ministries together, it's a possibility. I personally think if I were to have to choose some, almost everyone agrees it's at least Elijah. And I think the second possibility more than likely would be Moses. How do I know Elijah? I preached a sermon 10 years ago, the second coming of Elijah. You said the second coming of Christ or the second coming of Elijah? Second coming of Elijah. Preached it from Malachi chapter 4, because Elijah is coming again. Do you remember in Malachi chapter 4, the prophet said, Behold, I am going to send Elijah, Malachi, he lives hundreds of years after Elijah is dead, and yet he writes, behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming in of the great and terrible day of the Lord. Before the coming great and terrible day of the Lord, we call it the great tribulation, the 70th week of Daniel's prophecy. Elijah is going to come back. That's what God says. That's what he prophesies. That's what he predicted. Remember on that occasion when Peter and James and John questioned Jesus and they say, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? In other words, they were getting this chatter from the religious opponents of the day. Jesus can't be the Messiah. Why not? Because the prophet said Elijah is going to come back first. And Elijah hasn't come, so he can't be Messiah. What they didn't see is there's two comings of Messiah. First, he comes as a suffering servant. Then he comes as a sovereign Lord where the governments of this world will be on his shoulders. And so they discounted it. So why do the scribes say Elijah must come first? He responds, Elijah is coming and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah already came, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they wished. So also the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Jesus made it clear, number one, Elijah is coming again, yet in one sense he has already come because John the Baptist came in the spirit and power of Elijah. And then the disciples understood that what he had spoken to them was about John the Baptist. So Jesus makes this double-edged statement in the Gospels, affirming Malachi's prophecy that it will happen. But on the other hand, John, in one sense, symbolized that. Now, the Bible is clear. He is going to come, Elijah. So if he is going to come during the time of the great and terrible day of the Lord, well, couldn't this Fella be Elijah? Certainly could be. Not to mention, he has some of the same characteristics that Elijah had when he was here on the earth. What did Elijah do? He stopped the rain. How long did these two men minister? Three and a half years, 1260 days, 42 months, times time and a half times. You paying attention? Come on now. How long did Elijah make the rain stop? Three and a half years, not by accident, same time frame. And so Elijah, he made the rain stop. He also called fire down from heaven. Remember, oh, let's go get Elijah. Send 50 men. Whoosh, fire comes down. Send another 50. Whoosh, third group comes. I don't know that I want to go and obey the king's command. Every time 50 go, they get wiped out. Who turned the water into blood? Moses. Remember Jesus when he's on the Mount of Transfiguration? And Jesus had said, ah, you guys aren't going to die before you see a glimpse of the kingdom. And who does he have up there in the top of the Mount of Transfiguration? Moses and Elijah. And by the way, Moses... He wasn't translated into heaven, yet you see him in that intermediate body that we get before because we have some kind of an intermediate body before our body is raised because the saints in heaven have some kind of a robe and you got to hang it on something, but it's not our final body, all right? Look, here's the point. Doesn't matter who the two are. The fact is, they are coming, and they're going to do precisely what Jesus said. Secondly, beyond the ministry of the two witnesses, I want you to see the massacre of the two witnesses. Their massacre is described on two levels. First, the reason for their massacre. Notice, if you will now, in verse 7, when they had finished their testimony, the beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war with them and overcome them and kill them. Now, the beast has many aliases in Scripture, and we've seen that. He's called the little horn, the king of fierce countenance, the prince who is to come, a despicable person, the willful king, a foolish shepherd, the worthless shepherd, the man of lawlessness, the son of perdition, the beast. But most people in America today know him simply by the term Antichrist. Notice verse 7. When they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war with them and overcome them and kill them. Now, when you read the scriptures and you study the Antichrist in Daniel and in the Revelation, and we're getting in a very detailed study of him later on in the Revelation, you discover he's a real human person, made of flesh and blood, just like in you, you and me. And yet the scripture also links him to the abyss. Do you remember when we studied the abyss in Revelation chapter 9? Right now, if you're a demon, a fallen demon a whole bunch of them have total freedom to wage war in the heavenly places. And so Paul says, look, your real battle is not your neighbor, it's not your mother, it's not your mother-in-law. It's 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 fle- it's not flesh and blood, it's principalities and powers and evil forces. But there's a certain class of demons that have no freedom. And so remember when Jesus uh deals with the Gadarene demoniacs and they beg him, "Oh, please don't send us into the abyss. Send us into these hogs." And so Jesus honors that. That's a sermon in itself. But here's the point. When you go into the abyss, everything stops. When does it unstop? Well, we studied it already in the ninth chapter. God sends an angel down and he opens up the abyss and a zillion demons that are so great, they're likened to locusts. They come and they taunt people for five months. And so this demon comes up out of the abyss. Now there are only two people in all the word of God who's called the son of perdition. You remember who they are? Judas and the Antichrist. What characterized Judas? He was a real human. What else characterized him? That day when he took the sop, literally the devil came and inhabited him. I don't know if the devil literally inhabits the Antichrist or just one of his demons. It seems more likely to me the latter, because Satan is not in the abyss and won't be there until the thousand-year reign of Christ. But this man is satanically empowered by demonic forces from the evil one. And so they oppose these two witnesses, and they overcome them, and they kill them. Which, by the way, is a reminder to me that your life is not over unless you ended short by your own choice. The days that God has ordained for you, even before there was yet one, were all recorded in His book. That your life is not over until God's done with you. Paul could say at the end of his life, "I've fought the good fight, I've finished the course, I've kept the faith." Now, sometimes God is done with us sooner than maybe later because we quit on Him. I don't really need Him there anymore. Look, you should be serving the Lord faith. I've seen a few people that I've done funerals for over the years, and sometimes I think, or just doesn't make sense. But then again, they quit on you three years ago. I couldn't say that at their funeral, but I think things sometimes I want to say. But you are indestructible until God's finished with you beyond the reason for their slaughter. The Antichrist hates them. Their message is the opposite of the Antichrist. They're exposing this man as a fraud. Secondly, the reaction to their massacre, verse 8. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which mystically is called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. These people are so crude, so hardened. Even today, when some heinous criminal takes out a bunch of people, most humans, at least for no one else's sake but the family, allow a a burial to take place. Not in this day. Here in the holy city, the city where Jesus was crucified, it's likened to the worldliness of Sodom, and it's likened to the pride of Egypt. And so we read in verse 9, those from the peoples and tribes and tongues and nations will look at their dead bodies for three and a half days and will not permit their dead bodies to be laid in a tomb. I mean, talk about an insult the peoples and tribes and tongues and nations. You could say the whole world. Now, I suppose God could have localized it if he pulled the rapture off in the third century. But think about the technology we have today. Wherever you are on the planet, you know what's happening in Tokyo and Moscow and London and New York and Beijing via the internet or social media or live camera TVs. The whole world is going to see these two people. They're laying in the streets, and what are they going to do? Verse 10, and those who dwell on the earth, these are earth dwellers. Two groups of people, follow it carefully, we're going to see it in these two verses. First, there's those who dwell on the earth, literally earth dwellers. And that phrase, every time it's used in the Revelation, describes people who are hardened in unbelief. They've taken the mark of the beast. Those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and celebrate. And they will send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. Listen, this is a satanic Christmas of sorts. This is the devil's Christmas. You think our Christmas has become secularized? This event, people are going to exchange gifts with one another, celebrating. Oh, they're gone now. The rain can come. We can drink the water. No more problems. Let's celebrate. They're in for a shock. Look finally at the miracle of the two witnesses. The miracle of the two witnesses. We first read of the miracle of their awakening. Two miracles are underscored. But after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God came into them, and they stood on their feet, and great fear fell upon those who were watching them. I mean, the big party doesn't last long three and a half days. Can you imagine the peoples of the world are celebrating and probably have your big screen TV and come on over and let's get drunk. And you talk about immorality in that day. It will be so widespread. And then they're going to see these two people come back to life. And people are going to be gripped by it. Great fear will fall upon them. That's the miracle of their awakening. And then there's the miracle of their ascension. Look at verse 12. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up into heaven in the cloud. And their enemies watched them. A loud voice speaks directly from heaven, come up here. And they're carried away by, by angels in a cloud. It's an incredible thought just to consider and ponder. Like like Lazarus, who's carried away by the angels. You know, when you go into the presence of God, you're you're welcome there. And you're brought into that place by angels. That's one of their ministries. They've come out to render service for those who will believe. I often thought of that in relation to my granddaughter. And one day God gave me just great comfort that she didn't go there into his presence all alone, but she went in there guided by some of God's holy angels. And these guys are taken up in a cloud. I mean, this is a real dreamliner, literally. Literally. In millions of people, they're just going to be awed. It's kind of like the rapture, but on the other hand, it's like the ascension when they watched Jesus—not in the twinkling of an eye—but they watched him until they could see him no longer, like a balloon floating up in the sky. And you watch; I still see it. I st- you see? I see it. He's gone. And they were going to watch these two witnesses float away. And in that hour, verse thirteen, there was a great earthquake. And a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake. It's a limited, localized earthquake. And God takes out a specific number, a tenth of the city. And the rest were terrified. The rest who? The rest who are not earth dwellers who are confirmed in their unbelief, as we'll see over and over again as we work through these final chapters, the rest, what do they do? They gave glory to God. What's one of the functions of the 144,000 and these two witnesses to bring unbelievers to faith? Why? Because God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. He wishes that none should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so some will give glory to God Now, how are we going to apply this passage to our lives? This is not just about some pie-in-the-sky future event. Remember, these are seven churches in the first century who are reading this letter. John is sending it them to strengthen them, to encourage them, and it's written for us as well. Let me suggest three applications as we close. Number one, persecution can be a platform to share the truth persecution can be a platform to share the truth. These two witnesses are hated by the beast, by the Antichrist. And Jesus warned that most of his servants, most of his pastors who preach the word of God will not be in some popularity contest. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for their fathers used to treat the false prophets in the same way. Paul said, indeed, all, not just preachers, but all, who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Look, if you choose, not just by your life, but by your words, and there's where a lot of Christians in this age are falling. They say, I witness with my life, and they don't witness with their words. But by your life and your words, you live for Christ. I will tell you, there's going to be some people who will talk behind your back. They won't invite you out to play golf anymore, won't have you over to the dinner anymore. He's got religion. He's got one of those fanatical born-again experiences. Let's leave him out. That's what happens. But there will be people in the midst of that who will be one to Jesus. I remember the first time I was ever really kind of persecuted. I'd been saved about six months. I was coming in on a Friday night into my dormitory, CLX there at Boston College. It was just shoulder-to-shoulder people, cake party, people just getting totally wasted. And as I came in with a Bible under my arm on that Friday night, this guy named Doc said, hey, look, here comes Brogy. He's coming from his Bible study. Hey, Brogy, have a beer, and he's trying to give me a beer. I said, no, thanks, Doc, that's okay. I have a beer. I said, that's okay. I'll give you a beer and all over me. Though I will never forget Doc because my last year at Boston College, one week before I graduated, I hadn't seen him in a year and a half on that campus. He searches me out. He says, Carl, one, I'm here for two reasons. To apologize to you what I did a few years back. But he said, my life is so empty, and I know what you have is real. Please help me. And he received Christ as his Savior. Listen, persecution is sometimes the platform that God uses to bring people into the kingdom of God. Second, I learned from this passage, it's not your responsibility to convert people, but simply to be faithful. Look, that's what these two witnesses do. And while those who dwell on the earth reject him, the rest, the non-earth dwellers, they gave glory to God. Look, some of you are trying to win a son, a daughter to Christ. Don't give up. I've seen sometimes the prayer of a parent or a grandparent answered at their funeral where the person gives their life to Jesus Christ. You just be faithful. Your job is to be faithful. God's job is to convert. Finally, our witness can only be effective if done in God's power. We saw that these two witnesses are described as olive trees and candlesticks, both symbolizing the fact that God had his hand on their lives. The olive tree there in Zechariah, it speaks of the power the unction, the oil the Spirit of God gives, whereas the lampstand, it speaks of not of their unction, but of their function, the light that they shine. And so these two witnesses under the power of the Holy Spirit are light to the world. And some of us are trying to burn the wick without the oil. And it just doesn't work. If you burn the wick without the oil, if you attempt to do God's work in your own power, in your own human resources, all you're going to do is create a lot of smoke. And you hear me week after week, year after year, talk about our need to rely on God, the Holy Spirit, who lives in us so that he might empower us. Now, you may be here and you are not born again. That means you don't have the Holy Spirit yet. You will get him the moment you call upon Jesus in faith. But some of us are here, we're indwelt by the Spirit, and we need to obey the command given to save people to be filled with the Spirit. Because we've been lackadaisical, we've compromised in small areas of our life, and it's not always the big thing that short-circuits the power of God. Very often it's the small things where the Holy Spirit who lives in you cannot fill you Today would be a good day to get things right. To listen
1: again to today's study entitled Two Witnesses from Another Place, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD by calling 877-787-7478 and requesting program REV26. Search the Scriptures is committed to introducing Christ to those who don't know Him and growing believers in their walk with Him. Join us in our mission through a one-time or regular financial gift. Details are online at searchthescriptures.org or by clicking the Give button on our Search the Scriptures app. You can also call 877-787-7478. Thank you. Tomorrow we begin a look at the New World Order. Join us then as we search the Scriptures.